The material in this podcast is for entertainment, educational, and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for professional medical advice. You should not rely on this information to make any medical-related decisions. Nothing in this podcast constitutes a doctor-patient relationship, and nothing should be taken as specific medical advice for any given person. I hope you enjoy Marked Medicine. Hey, Mark. I have a question. Okay. How many times do you think I've asked you that question? Do numbers go that high? I doubt it. And from that concept, the idea of marked medicine was born with Dr. Mark Brulte. And with Amanda Brulte, my favorite nurse practitioner. And you're now listening to Marked Medicine. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Marked Medicine, the podcast. November 2023 is National Diabetes Awareness Month. It is specifically awareness to raise awareness for type 1 diabetes, which is otherwise known as juvenile onset diabetes. can be oftentimes a devastating diagnosis and disease for patients and families, and we're really lucky to have a wonderful guest today, known around here as Miss Lola. We've <laughs> Uh, Lola three, her grandson has type one diabetes and she's going to tell us her story, but as important or even more importantly, according to Amanda, uh, Miss Lola has been in healthcare since about 2010 and used to take care of the most beloved woman alive, Amanda's granny, Vanita Milholland. And that's where Lola and Amanda became Yes, family members. Best friends and family members. And family members. Lola is part of the family now. Y'all stuck with me. Oh, gosh. You stuck with us. I would say that was the case. Uh, Yes, we love you, Miss Lola. Thank you for being here. So, Miss Lola, tell us a little bit about your personal story and what you've been doing and how you became part of type 1 diabetes, essentially. Well, in 2013, my grandson was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. He was eight and a half. And um, I noticed as seven and eight year old, he was beginning to wet the bed. And I was thought, you know, thought it was strange because as a toddler, he didn't wet the bed at all. And so one one day during the summer, my daughter-in-law says, have you took Michael to the doctor? I say, for what? She says, he's using the bathroom unusual amount. I said, well, it's hot. He's probably drinking a lot more. She says, no, this is excessive. So I took him to the doctor, and from there on, we went to Dr. Childress and got diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. So was he diagnosed at y'all's first appointment? First appointment. Wow. Because that's actually unusual, right, Mark? Yeah. Which we can get into that later. It absolutely can be. Kudos to Dr. Childress for doing that. That's excellent, particularly in an office environment where it can be know, limited resources for testing and yeah. maybe just with a finger stick glucose and taking a good history, a mm-hmm. ex- excellent job. And that's what he did. He, you know, tested him there and he says from here, he said, y'all will go to Savannah for three days. And I'll say Savannah. He says, yes, you got to learn everything about diabetes from in Savannah for three days. Three days. The, yeah. It's, it's an interesting way you tell that story because the, the root words for diabetes, diabetes mellitus, that's the fancy name of the disease. The word diabetes comes from Greek, from a Greek word diabetes that means siphon, as in, you know, a, a funnel, you know, the, right. the excessive urination. And mellitus comes from a Latin word, mellitus, that means sweet. So mm-hmm. it's a sweet siphon. That's where the phrase diabetes mellitus came from. And it certainly 
makes sense historically when you look at these people hundreds, thousands of years ago that watched this disease process develop. It's actually very smart people back then. They yeah. just didn't have the scientific testing that we have. Looking back on it, do you did you notice any other symptoms like now when you look back on it? Well, I did. He was, you couldn't ever fill him up. He was hungry all the time. I mean, and at seven and eight, he could eat a grown man's plate and then ask for more. And I'm like, son, you can't be hungry. And as he was di diagnosed and I learned, you know, the symptoms, the doctor says, yes, he's hungry. And I, you know, you think back and you'll be like, well, why did I, you know, because you just don't know. You don't think about a child eating a grown man's plate. But he was, he was eating a grown man's size plate at seven and eight. Was he losing weight? He wasn't. He's always been a chunky child, but he's, he didn't lose any weight. Mm -mm. So when you think back, how long do you think he had been wetting the bed and eating excessively? I would say six to seven, yeah, mm -hmm. so before he was diagnosed. Six to seven months. Years, six, six, six to seven years oh, old. Okay, and he uh -huh. was about eight and a half eight, when he was right. diagnosed. About two years before so he was diagnosed. Years, yes. And was he drinking a lot of fluids? Also, he was. He loved water. He drank water like crazy. And you know, I was just, you never, you know, you don't think about stuff like that. Well, you don't, and that's exactly why we wanted to have you here today. Because uh -huh. you, when you have a small child that is possibly, you know, going to develop type one diabetes down the road. People oftentimes have stories like yours where, thinking back on it, we've noticed signs and symptoms for two years. Yeah. And so people don't know. And that's interesting because the the phrases that you learn in medical school, every medical school, mm -hmm. polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphagia, which mm -hmm. means polyuria, polyuria means excessive urination, and even, even nocturnal enuresis, which means bedwetting at night. Mm -hmm. um, polydipsia, they're drinking a lot, but they're just... Thirsty, thirsty, thirsty. I have to drink. I have to drink. Mm -hmm. And polyphagia, I eat, I eat, I eat because they're not utilizing their calories. All the glucose in their serum is causing what we call an osmotic diuresis. And so they're just urinating all their fluids coming out behind the sugar that spills out in their urine. So that's classic polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. The three polys, the three P's, mm -hmm. diabetes, type 1 diabetes. Well, there's a neurosurgeon that I love to listen to. His name is Dr. Hofflinger, and I was listening to him last week, and he said, you know, he, he does a podcast and some different things and educates people about neurosurgery primarily, but he says, you know, if you feel like you have something to share and that's your motivation for doing what you're doing, mm -hmm. then you should certainly do it, even if it only helps one, one person, mm -hmm. and that's partially, you know, what we're about, and, you know, I, I really do think that somebody listening could learn from this, and I know that so one thing I want you to talk about, um, one thing I know that you and I talked about in mm -hmm. the past was when you talk about him wet in the bed, and we're mm -hmm. not talking about once a year. No. Talk it about was... that a little bit so that, you know, I, I mean, seriously, there may be someone listening who their child is doing this. And... Yeah. I mean, because as a toddler, you know, I never had a problem with him wet in the bed, and that's when you expect them to wet the bed. But at six and seven, he started wet in the bed, and we would keep a nightlight on because that was another thing. I thought he was too scared to get up and go use the bathroom. And it was just like two and three times a night. And I'm like, you know, this is what you, right. I would, 
once again, I thought he was afraid to get up and go to the bathroom. Because he would actually wet the bed. He would three. actually, yeah, yes, Like, we're not talking bed. he's getting up to go to the bathroom right. three times. wetting the bed. Yeah. And yeah. Miss Lola and I have had this conversation because of our weird scenario with Erilyn, mm-hmm. which, you know, when she had the signs of... And I was telling her, I said, there was a time when I was driving to Tifton. So from here to Tifton, which is a 45-minute drive, and I had to pull over three times on that drive to get her out. And and, and and we didn't have time to get inside. Right. She had to use the bathroom right now. On the side yeah. of the road. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and we were lucky to have made it beside the road. Yeah. And we have had cases like that, too. You know, it going, you know, just say the way cross. We got to pull in, pull side the road so he can... Use the bathroom right now because he got to go right then. And again, this was a child that at age one, two, potty trained normally. Potty trained. Everything was cool for a few years. Yes. And then all of a sudden, as a school age child, start, you know, that's abnormal. You know? Yeah. Starting to wet it's the bed. not a child that continued to do this. Right. This was, but again, no. you don't think about it, you know, when it first starts happening because, no. like she said, you think he's scared, mm-hmm. or maybe he feels like I don't want to bother other people, so right. I'm just gonna. Or maybe he drank a lot. Mm-hmm. Maybe he drank too much water before bedtime. Mm-hmm. These are probably the things that you. Have and to that run was another thing too. We, you know, we would when we noticed him wet in the bed. We, there was a certain time that he couldn't have anything to drink, and it still continued for him to wet the bed, and he was like. Mm. Now, did you ever notice any kind of fruity smelling breath or anything like that? Even now, I can't detect that fruity sp- smell. But, you know, I just say a doctor, when we was in the hospital at one time, and they were saying the room was so fruity, but I can't detect that smell. I can look at his features and tell if it's high or low. Really? Mm-hmm. What What does he look now, like? Now, his face, when it's low, he just looked like he's just based zoned out i mean just looking around like he's zoned out now when it's high there's a different look but i can't really tell when it's really high because you know he's sweating a lot something like that but i really can't right and one thing mark you may have to help me clear this up i would like for anyone listening to kind of have an understanding of low blood sugar just a little bit Mm -hmm. you know sure he experiences that now and that's because y'all are having to give him insulin replacement etc but typically, that is not a sign of type 1 diabetes. Correct. Type 1 diabetes always presents with hyperglycemia. They never become hypo, which means high blood sugar. Mm-hmm. They never become hypoglycemic, which means low blood sugar, until they're getting exogenous insulin, which means, you know, manufactured insulin shots or the, um, the pump. The, the pump the and the things that they mm-hmm. use now, right? Mm-hmm. So... And it... And, Type 1s always present with high sugar, bottom line. Right, and it's actually fairly um, rare anyway, whole nother topic for another day, for someone just to have pure low blood sugar that's not related to diabetes. Correct. Just just hypoglycemia as a disease process is incredibly rare. It's always, almost always secondary. There's an insulinoma or they've gotten exogenous insulin or they have starvation ketosis and they've I mean starvation they've depleted their glycogen stores in their liver and th- right. but that's yeah. a three-day process in an and, adult. and uh-huh. we could get into that more another day maybe because again I don't I don't want people to think that like oh you know hey if my kid's not eating they're going to get low blood sugar because that's typically not what happens pretty rare well, right again a whole nother and the fruity topic. breath odor that the type ones get is mm-hmm. from the 
ketoacidosis, the ketones cause this fruity smell. The other thing that they will often get at onset is changes in vision. Did he ever complain about his vision being poor? Now, if he dropped low, he says it gets blurry, and his he complained more about his tummy hurting when his dropped. So what about when he was initially diagnosed? Did he have lots of tummy pain prior to being diagnosed? He didn't really complain about that, no. Because mm-hmm. that can actually be a sign also, you okay. know, is abdominal pain. A lot of kids yes. will have abdominal mm-hmm. pain. At onset, nausea, vomiting, and abdominal pain are frequent complaints with mm-hmm. type 1 diabetics when they're around the time of diagnosis. The vision change occurs because of the excessively high blood sugars the sugar lays down in the lens of the eye and the lens swells so they get changes in their visual acuity. And, but the abdominal pain and the nausea and vomiting are very common. The other thing that I see in the ER, and I've seen this several times, is sore throat because they get so dehydrated. They're spilling sugar and urine so frequently that they can't keep up um, drinking. And so their throat is, quote, sore, end quote, but it's not really sore. It's that their mucous membranes are so dry they perceive it as a sore throat. And I've seen a few patients that I diagnosed with type 1 diabetes new onset from a sore throat, and even one or two that were bounce backs have been seen, and no fault of the other providers, they are seen for a sore throat somewhere, get prescribed some antibiotics, they come in a week later and say, Doc, my, my throat's no better, and I'm taking these antibiotics, and I look in there, and they're just like the Sahara Desert, they're so mm. dehydrated, That's and I see that some also. Right. Yeah, the majority of time when he uh, has ketoacidosis, he is dehydrated. Very. Very dehydrated, yeah. Well, when I worked in pediatrics all those years, so if there's any healthcare provider listening, keep this in mind, you know, do I, can I sit here and say that every sore throat diabetes was in the back of my mind? I don't know. I mean, I think probably somewhere it probably was, (laughs) but it kind of should be, especially if the strep swab is negative, you know, you Mm. should... Don't take that one for granted because that is a very common sign. We did see that a lot in the peds office. And they will usually look quite dehydrated, very dry mucous membranes, cracked lips, things like that. They're tachycardic. Their heart's beating fast. They're thirsty. They're drinking water right in front of you. you But don't sleep on that. Don't sleep on sore throat. No. Right. It's a sore throat that's due to severe dehydration. They usually look dehydrated. Their mucous membranes are dry. Their lips are cracked. You know, it's it's just different. And they, they say, oh, I took those antibiotics that were prescribed and I'm just no better. So it is a little different. The, the other significant signs and symptoms as somebody's developing type 1 diabetes is they will get, ultimately, as they're going into DKA around the time of diagnosis, they'll get very drowsy and lethargic and alteration in mental status. They'll get this heavy, deep, rapid breathing called Kussmaul breathing. They're trying to use respiratory compensation for their developing metabolic ketoacidosis, and it's a very specific type of breathing that they do. And if you've seen it once, you'll never miss it again when you see it. And ultimately, untreated, they'll get into a stupor, a coma, and eventually death without treatment. So it's very important to recognize these signs and symptoms if you're a healthcare provider. The the history of diabetes is amazing, and we'll talk about that, but what is the big impact on your family? Once you said, we're going to, the doctor tells you we're going to, you're going to go to this big hospital for three days and learn everything about diabetes. Oh, that's great. Learn everything about diabetes in three days and just massive change in everyone's life in the family. How did that happen in your place? It was a drastic change. You know, I'm 
after coming home, you know, you try and teach as many people that you think that's going to be contact in contact with him or helping you see about him. You got to, you got to kind of be a teacher to teach them what you know about diabetes. And it's just like having a, a child or a baby, you know, he's eight years old, but it's like you having an infant, you're waking up all time of the night thinking he's going to bottom out or, you know, it was just a drastic change. And, you know, it, the whole household, you know, it affected everybody because like no one was sleeping, <laughs> you right. know, all time of the night you're waking up. And I, it was really hard for me because I was like, you know, you never know when he's going to have a load. You try to make sure he eat a snack before he goes to bed. Hopefully he doesn't bottom out, you know, during the night. And I even thought about getting a dog to, you know, the diabetes dog to alert. But that was another subject there. Right. <laughs> I've, I've read some about those before. How did the new diagnosis impact him? I mean, going from an eight-year-old kid that wants to play and have fun to now all of a sudden I have to have shots every right. so many hours. It really affected him uh, tremendously because there are times when I, I would talk to him, like I can tell when he don't get his insulin. And this when he first started, he was giving himself shots. He was going supposed to be going to the nurse to get, get his self shots, get his shots at the uh, nurse's station at school. And he wouldn't go. And I was, I would ask him, why didn't you go to the nurse? And he really didn't ever say, but I kind of put it together. And it was like he was shamed or kind of embarrassed because he felt like he was so different than the other kids. Yeah, that's... And yeah, no kids want to be different. Right. That's a huge change for them. And they'll, yeah. you'll get rebellion, uh, that typical... And I think one of the things that they do is, and we were talking about it before the recording today, is the the camps that they have for t kids with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And I know the different states have different ones. And mm -hmm. did y'all ever participate in any of those? We and did. Uh, one year, um, maybe I think like a year and a half after he was diagnosed, we went to the camp down in Savannah. Well, it wasn't in Savannah. It was in South Carolina, North Carolina one. And they offered that camp with there. And he... He uh, bonded with a lot of people there. Did that help change his perspective at all on his diagnosis? Did that help his self-esteem? Sort of, but when he came back home, you know, it was a different story. You know, he gained a friend at school. She was a diabetic in the same, well, a great under him, and they became really good friends at school. Right. Yeah. So it just remained hard on him being, I'm sure he, isolated and still today he's feel, he feels different because i asked him about coming you know to talk he says nana it's just hard for me to talk about it because i feel so different i said well you're not different you just got diabetes right yeah it's, and it's only f about five percent of the cases of diabetes total most 90 to 95 percent of cases are type 2 or adult onset diabetes so type 1 is still kind of rare i mean it's not rare i see type 1 diabetics quite a bit, but rare in the general population and rare in numbers of cases compared to total diabetic cases. So I can certainly see how it would have a tremendous impact on the developing psyche of a child. Um, well, and Mark, I know we talked about it earlier, but we were not recording, but when are the peak ages of onset of type 1 diabetes? The average is age 13. 
and there's two peaks, I think, between the ages of four and six and between the ages of 10 to 14. And looking back on it, I have diagnosed a couple of toddlers, pre-kindergarten kids with diabetes, but most of them have been 8, 10, 12, 11, somewhere in that range. I can certainly see that the older age group is the bulk of whom I've diagnosed in or, or the, they were diagnosed that, like happened with you at the pediatrician's office, they sent them straight to the ER to get stabilized and get IV fluids and be shipped off. And it's interesting, an adult-sized type 1 diabetic that's in DKA is somewhere in the range of 10 to 15 liters total body fluid deficient. So you're looking at three gallons of fluid that they are deficient. It's amazing how dehydrated these people get with unchecked, you know, runaway high glucose. It's incredible. Well, I'd like you to explain one of the common misconceptions for type 1 diabetes, and I'll ask you about it in a moment. But as you're listening, Miss Lola, I would love to know for you to be thinking about, are there any other misconceptions that y'all have dealt with or that y'all have had to face that maybe kind of impacted his self-esteem even more? So one of those, Mark, is um, basically can type 1 diabetes be prevented? You know, I've, I've read stories where Parents were told, you know, well, you know, you could prevent that if they were not eating sweets or et cetera, you know, and kind of makes the mother feel bad. But the the short answer is no, it's not an environmental thing. It's not, you know, I eat too much Halloween candy, you know, and too many Reese's cups and whatnot. That is not the case. It is, it's an autoimmune process, mostly. Some speculation that viral infections can set it off, and I've read different things. Is it a cross-reactive immunity? The immune response to the virus somehow also attacks the islet cells of the pancreas, the islets of Langerhans, the, the, the beta cells are the ones that produce the insulin, and, and the um, immune response attacks those cells post-viral infection. Or is it just built-in autoimmune? Their genes are such that they make those antibodies that attack those cells. So no, it's not anything a parent or a child or anyone did. It's it's just the way they're made. And and they've actually identified the genes. In 30 to 50% of cases, I'll have to read this because I don't know this off the top of my head, but it's the HLA class 2 gene 6P21. That's about or up to half of cases. And so, you know, now we know that we've, identified the human genome just over 20 years ago exactly exactly what's going on with that so it's it's amazing what these researchers the diseases that we've known about i think diabetes mellitus was first mentioned in written human history gosh 250 300 bc you're talking 2300 years 2500 years they've known about this disease People didn't live long back then. They would put them on severe calorie restriction and carbohydrate restriction, and that would prolong their lifespan for months to years, but they all died very rapidly. Terrible, terrible. And um, But the, the risk factors are family history, genetics, age, like we talked about, young age, and oddly, geography. The further you live away from the equator, more you go north or south away from the equator, the higher the diabetes type one. I thought that was interesting. I don't know exactly why, but it but it just is, and it's just um, they've got four different tests now. They can actually test the antibodies, 
their islet cell autoantibodies, antibody to insulin, glutamic acid decarboxylase, and protein tyrosine phosphatase antibodies. Now, I read those. I didn't know that off the top of my head, okay? But that's how good they've gotten at identifying the actual antibodies that are causing the disease in these people and destroying the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin, which is really amazing in just a few short years. And It is. And so I know whenever there's a, a child in a family that has type 1 diabetes, oftentimes these tests will be presented as an option for the other children. Isn't that correct? Yes, they they can do that and do just to see, the genetic know. testing to see if they've got. Because the more of these antibodies you have floating around, the more likely you are to develop type one diabetes. Right. Though not everybody with antibodies develops type one diabetes. And not every and not everybody that develops type one diabetes has, has the, the antibodies. antibodies. Correct. So it's not a perfect test. So there are some cases, and that's probably some of the viral cases that have none of these autoantibodies that still develop type one diabetes. Just it's fascinating to read about. And you asked earlier about could they have prevented it, and along that same vein, can you cure type 1 diabetes? There is no real cure except for a transplant, a pancreatic transplant or an islet cell transplant. But they did do some research about stem cells, and that's a new burgeoning treatment. They, they're transplanting stem cells that I presume are growing these islet cells to produce insulin, and they've actually done that. Uh, you know, we're still in the research phase of that, but there's he's 18. There's there's big hope for him in the future that he won't be treated like I've been forced to treat type one diabetics over the last 25 years, which would which would be amazing. Yeah. So are there other things you can think of? You know, sometimes people deal with people saying things to them, and they may mean well, but kind of hurts your feelings that they said it. You know, so that's just one of the things I hear people complain about is. You know, someone saying, well, you could prevent that if you wouldn't have fed so many sweets. Did y'all deal with anything else similar or anything that was completely not true that we could teach people about? Well, what I wanted to add is um, now his doctor in Savannah, when we was going there, she did tell me, she says, if you had a birthday party, let him have a piece of cake. Let him be a child and cover it with his insulin. She says, do not die, deny him of being a child if he's at a birthday party. Let him enjoy it. So I thought that was really good. You know, that way at that point he wouldn't feel left out, you know. So I, I really, I do that with cover with insulin. So as far as the misconception, we hadn't had any, hadn't experienced any of that yet, you know. But I'm sure some have thought. Well, I think. The doctor in Savannah that told you to let him have the cake was very wise because it allows him to fit in in his mind and be a child and be amongst his peers and hopefully prevent severe rebellion where he won't take any treatments. And then the ravages of of untreated or nearly untreated diabetes will be rapidly apparent. So I think that was extremely good advice on that doctor's part. And I know we've touched on it how you compensate for what he's going to eat and everything. And diabetes treatment has really come a long ways with all the fancy pumps and the insulin sensors, Dexcom, uh, and, yes. and as compared to the old days of 
70-30 insulin or, or some long-acting insulin with insulin around meals. So how has his treatment changed over the years? Because this has been 10 years y'all have been dealing with this. Right. Tell us how it started and where you are now with that. Well, when he first started, he was on, um, he was getting, you had to count up his carbs, and then he did, had a sliding scale, and you base his insulin on that. He was had the pin needle. He was giving himself shots. And um, if he got a snack, he got insulin for it. Whatever he ate, he got insulin for it. And um, so now we're at the point, he's always had the Dexcom. And that Dexcom, it gives, he doesn't have to check his sugar. He, uh, it automatically goes to his phone and my phone also. And to the doctor. It's linked to the doctor. Now we're at the pump, which gives him insulin, the Omnipod. It gives him insulin. He goes in a little PDM, put in his numbers, his carbs, and his uh, his blood sugar, and it automatically gives him his uh, insulin. He has to change that three times. No, he changed that every three days. And his decks come, he changed that every 10 days. So I think those two work wonders. Right, because work prior wonders. to that, Y'all are checking blood, finger stick blood sugars how many like times four, a day? At least four times a day. Was that were, a battle? Yes, that was a battle. And you were chasing. You were yes. you were dealing with old data to try and guess. Exactly. You know, so it now it's really like an electronic pancreas. And I know I'm pretty close friends with some people with type one diabetes, and they get so good watching their Dexcom and and manipulating the settings on their pump. They're watching their sugars fall if they're working and they've been out in the heat and whatnot and not no, no access to calories. They know as it's falling where they're about to be and they know exactly how many sips of like a Coke or a Sprite that they need to bring it up 10 points or 20 points or whatever it is, you know, because they know, hey, I've got lunch in 90 minutes, so I need three sips of Coke. I've got lunch in 30 minutes, I only need one sip of Coke. It's amazing how facile and good they get at this. It's really cool. It, it really, really is. is. It really is. Or he can eat a, like a 15-car snack, and that'll put him where he needs to be till he eat supper or, you know, eat the next meal. It's amazing yeah. that he knows that and mm-hmm. learned that. And a, a person I know has dropped their hemoglobin A1C, watched it go 12%, 11%, 9.5%, 8.5%, 7.5% using this electronic pancreas, essentially. Mm-hmm. Now, the last time we checked the A1C, it was 9.3. So we got a little tweaking to do. Got a little got a little learning to yeah. do. That's true. And But it is a field that technology has had great impact on. And, you know, one of the downsides of all this is the finances. You need insurance for sure. Exactly. All this stuff is extremely expensive. Extremely um, there were at one point we were in between uh, something happened with his insurance and I had to buy a vial of insulin and it was two hundred and sixty four dollars just a vial thirty day supply and it has to be refrigerated yes. people don't understand a lot it is an entire it is a bomb going off in everybody's life when the diagnosis is made it and really it, is and I realize I know and when I'm talking to parents in the ER and I'm We've got to send your child to wherever we're sending them, some big hospital to be on the pediatric endocrine service and learn to do all these things. You know, they're just looking at you in a state of shock, and they don't know what's 
coming their way. Now, they rapidly figure it out, but it is a huge impact on people's lives. It really is. Particularly type 1. And the smaller children, it is... And it's not something that you can put off just because you dread going to Savannah or, or you know, um, well, I really can't go to Savannah tonight. That's not an option. That's not an option. He says, uh, you got to go to Savannah. I say today. He says, yes, today for three days. So, Because in our area, the issue for us with pediatrics was not that our health care providers couldn't manage insulin and all this. We just simply don't have the diabetes education right. that's required to help. People learn the proper diet and how to use a sliding scale and that type of thing. We're just not equipped for that. And, of course, almost everybody that I deal with, if you've got a sick child, they're quite appropriately concerned about it, and there's very rarely pushback. If there is any kind of pushback, and it's not really pushback, it's like, well, we've got, and then they name an event, a birthday, a holiday, or whatever. I go, listen, I'm not worried about this birthday. I'm worried about the next 50 and that usually, there's almost always an adult in the room that it that's like throwing a light switch, and they instantly get it, and they go, we'll do what you say. You know, and I know you didn't push back. I didn't. <laughs> I know you too well. I was like, today? He says yes, today. Uh, well, it's today then. I'm gone. Which that's is an right. appropriate question, because you're in some state of shock. Right. I really was. I was not expecting that at all. It really is um, something that impacts the whole family. It it really is a, a disease that's existed for thousands of years of human history, and fortunately, we can deal with it now. I mean, just 102 years ago, insulin was discovered by, and every medical student knows these two names, Banting and Best, a surgeon and his assistant at University of Toronto, they won the Nobel Prize two years later. They went from knowing what diabetes was and that it, that it happened when the pancreas was removed from animals, and they discovered the substance. Even though they couldn't really synthesize it yet, they, they could get it out of these pancreas, pancreases that they would remove and giving it to other animals that they induced diabetes on and saving those animals' lives to giving it to a human in two years, and I believe they got the Nobel Prize the next year. So that's amazing. And Banting and Best, to their credit, shared the Nobel Prize with McLeod and Collip, two more of their partners. It was four people, four people did this and changed the uh, course of human history. After watching, you know, children die of this disease for thousands of years with no way to treat it, four people set their mind to fixing this and did it. That's impressive. Very impressive. And now, because I think largely in part because of social media and because of people like you, we can help raise awareness for people and change people's lives much sooner thanks to what these four people discovered. And I know your grandson has a wonderful grandmother. Thank you all that has helped him through this and will continue to do so. But I do want to, for the sake of history, uh, the first human being was a 14-year-old boy. His name was Leonard Thompson. And at the University of Toronto, that was the first human to get insulin. And they saved that child's life. He had runaway sugars and DKA. And shortly thereafter, Banting and Best and those guys won the Nobel Prize. Bet those were some happy parents. 
it so, <laughs> right? Because it's not impossible to recognize the signs and symptoms prior to going into DKA. Right. So that was kind of my whole point. You know, thank you for what you're doing because that's the goal is to help parents and grandparents recognize these symptoms prior to a child going into DKA. And his story and your story is literally a carbon copy of so many stories I've heard over the years in the ER. It's, it's when looking, everybody says looking back on it, there was this indolent process of over time and then it got worse and worse with the thirst and the hunger and the urination and then you ultimately show up and your sugars are unmeasurably high and you're sick and, right. and. But if people don't hear stories like yours, they don't know, you know, because if you would have heard someone else saying all those things, it may would have clicked a lot sooner. And then too, the strange thing about it is, you know, you go from me not thinking he's sick to he's type one diabetes. That's a drastic change because although he was wet in the bed, he wasn't sick. Right. And then when he was diagnosed, you know, you see everything going on and everything changing. Yeah. And like you said, everybody in the family's up all night okay. checking sugars, making sure he's not bottoming out. Yeah. Making sure the insulin's working and keeping it in the range it's supposed to be. It it really is a daunting. Thing. I mean, he because he has two younger si sisters, and they they didn't understand it, and they looking like you know what is happening to my brother, you know. I bet they were scared. They were scared. Yeah. Scared. It's, that's, I, that, I think that's great about November being the National Diabetes Awareness Month. I think that's an important thing to do and to get stories like this out there and let people hear it. And, hey, you never know. We don't know who's listening. Somebody may say, hey, you know, my next door neighbor, gosh, their mom was just telling me about all night long and the kid's nine. Maybe I'll mention this to them. Or they know? may listen today and two years from now, their child start with some of the same symptoms even. You just never know. Single beat of a butterfly's wing. Yes. Well, Miss Lola, you are well loved at this, at this home. I you can are. tell you that. And I know you are at your own also, and you've done a wonderful job. And I tell everybody I love the Brewerties. <laughs> well, thank you. I'm, Amanda deserves that love, but certainly I don't. But uh, nice. I do appreciate your efforts with your grandson, and I appreciate you being here and trying to help people, as you always do. It's just another extension of what you do daily, and it's just thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Mark, I'm super thankful Miss Lola joined us, of course, because I love her, but also because I do believe what I said, that, you know, if someone has information to share, please share it because... You never know who you may help. But as we talked about a little bit earlier, November is Diabetes Awareness Month. The Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation kind of deemed November as that. And that's a great website that has lots of resources for people. Another is the American Diabetes Association. They have lots of resources on there as well that we may talk about. But, of course, it's time for my favorite part of the show. Um Kind of my phone or friend, the concept behind that is I'm always calling you and saying, hey, Mark, what do I do? I have a question or whatever. So let's just kind of recap for the listeners. Mark, what are the early signs and symptoms of type 1 diabetes? Well, like we talked about, polyuria, polydipsia, and polyphasia is what every medical student learns. And it's just so, so true. 
The polyuria means frequent urination. The polydipsia means severe thirst and excessive drinking. Polyphagia is they just eat, 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 eat because they're in a calorie deficit. That's the big three. They also start getting vision changes because of the glycosylation of the lens, means the sugar is laying down in the lens of the eye, swelling the lens and changing the refraction of the light coming in so they see things differently. They'll often complain about vision changes. They get the fruity smell as they develop ketosis. They get nausea, vomiting, abdominal pain. Um, the sore throat from the dehydration is one thing that I have seen several times in the ER. They will ultimately start getting drowsy and lethargic with alteration in mental status. They'll start the heavy, deep, rapid Kussmaul breathing to try and respiratorily compensate for the developing metabolic acidosis. And they'll ultimately develop stupor, coma, and death without treatment as they go into the final stages of DKA, which is diabetic ketoacidosis, which is almost always the presentation of this disease. Right. Speaking of the presentation of this disease, there's a story that I like to follow about a, a small girl. Her name is Kaisi. Kisses for Kaisi, K-Y-C-I-E. She was actually diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was, I believe, five years old. I think she would be about 14 now. And one of the things that her family has worked to do is raise awareness for the early signs and symptoms for type 1 diabetes because, unfortunately, she did not have a favorable ending. In fact, she actually ended up um, experiencing cerebral edema, which, if you don't mind, if you'll talk a little bit about that in one second. But before I do, um, if anybody would like to look them up, I'll link them in our show notes. And another great resource is a group called Beyond Type 1 and, you know, their whole goal is just to raise awareness for the symptoms of diabetes and to prevent misdiagnosis and DKA. So those two things kind of go hand in hand. And if you don't mind, if you'd talk a little bit about that. So for our listeners who may hopefully recognize these signs and symptoms in a family member, and then also for any healthcare providers that may be listening so that they don't make this same catastrophic mistake. You know, I've listened to you talk about that website for a while now and you've read stories about it and everything and it's made me think and look back on my career and the big problem when kids present with DKA is the profound dehydration and electrolyte problems. So managing these patients is an exercise in compulsiveness. You have to manage the fluids properly, you have to manage the electrolytes properly, you have to manage the insulin dosing and bring them down slowly properly to prevent some of these catastrophic complications you can often present with hyperkalemia, really high potassium levels, and then it can plummet as you hydrate them. You have to be constantly monitoring their electrolytes. If you give too much insulin too fast and lower the glucose levels in the bloodstream, then the fluids start shifting into the brain cells and you can get very rapid cerebral edema. And I've watched over the years as I talk to these pediatric critical care doctors and pediatric endocrinologists at larger facilities the treatment change. Let's let's address the hydration issues. Let's slowly bring their sugars down. Let's watch their electrolytes every couple of hours to the point that really my role in the ER is to start the hydration process, make the diagnosis, treat any immediate life-threatening problems, hyperkalemia, rhythm disturbances of the heart, things like that and then get them there for them to compulsively manage a process that's going to take them several days to correct this child back to metabolically normal. It is very, very important to all the healthcare personnel listening to get in touch with the pediatric critical care doctors, get in touch with the pediatric endocrinologist, do exactly what they say, exactly how they say it, 
And this is where you really have to dot your I's and cross your T's to prevent an iatrogenic death, honestly. It's, it's rewarding, it's challenging, and it has to be done. Right, and if I may speak to nurse practitioners just for a minute, we're kind of earlier than even that because I worked in pediatrics for eight years, and let's be real, I'm not the one that transferred children to pediatric endocrinologists because I was sending them to the ER ASAP. That's just, that's what we do and that's what we should be doing. And so if we can take it back even a little bit, you know, a step further, earlier when I was talking about sore throat, I said, you know, don't sleep on sore throat. And I, I understand exactly what you said that, well, it's a different type of sore throat. It, it is a different type of sore throat, but I think it's important for the, the front line, so to speak, nurse practitioners that are out there, you really need to have these type things in the back of your mind. You need to always be considering, you know, the differential diagnoses and you don't need to just take it for granted that this is just a sore throat or this is, you know, just a kid that their tummy just hurts because they don't want to go to school or whatever. You know, if you have a child that always, always, always look for weight loss, always, you know, if that's the number one red flag, huge red flag. If you see weight loss on a child, do not send them home to eat more cereal. There's something going on. There is something going on. Children do not routinely lose weight without trying. And so that's number one red flag. Also, if you have a mama that brings a kid in and they happen to say, hey, she's wet in the bed, you know, multiple times a night. Don't just say, oh, well, sometimes kids just wet the bed. That should be, I think sometimes you word certain things as like a diagnosis of exclusion Really, you know, a bedwetter should just be a diagnosis of exclusion. If you have a kid that's all of a sudden wetting the bed, let's figure out why for sure. Also, if you have a mama, and I don't know that you're that you're going to have a mama that says my kid is eating all the time. They're eating me out of a house and home, so to speak. I don't know. You may, but I think if you see weight loss, if you see it's weight loss period, but if you see some of these other things in conjunction with other things also, then you're going to have to prompt them. Is your kid drinking a lot? Is your kid eating a lot? Are they sleepy? Are they lethargic? Does their tummy hurt? You're going to have to, you're going to have to feed it to them a little bit because they don't know. And that's why they're here. So do not take anything for granted. And I think you said several important things in there. You said the word why. You said the phrase differential diagnosis. And you said red flag. So again, back to the practicing medicine, you can't memorize every presentation of every disease and every treatment of everything known to man. It's not possible, but you can memorize a framework that you function within. Ask why. Formulate a differential. Worry about the big things that would kill somebody quickly or get somebody into trouble quickly, and then say, wouldn't I worry about that if they were in my own family? And, and rule those things out. And oftentimes it's simple. Check a urine. Check a finger stick glucose. Hey, they're vomiting and they have a severe headache that was sudden onset. Get a head CT. You know, I mean, whatever the case may be, I'm not talking about specifically about DKA and diabetes. I'm talking about anything. And so I think that basically you just said all of that. And I, I want people to hear and understand that. That's, that's the right way to do this job. Well, and again, for nurse practitioners, we may not know the pathophysiology of what happens to a child if you bring down their insulin too rapidly. We may not know that. We may not have gotten that training necessarily. But again, we're even earlier than that. We're we're before that. So the first thing that you have to do that you cannot miss is you have to recognize something's wrong. You don't even have to make the diagnosis. 
But you have to recognize that something is wrong and you have to send that child to a higher level of care. Correct. Absolutely. So also, if you don't mind, Mark, I hear people talk lots of times or ask questions about the honeymoon phase. Can you talk just a little bit about what is the honeymoon phase? Well, remember, this is a disease process that's autoimmune. They're usually auto autoantibodies are attacking the pancreas, the islet cells of the pancreas, and the beta the beta cells in the islets, and destroying them. And they quit making insulin. But that's a process. It's not like one day you're making insulin, the next day you're making no insulin. So that's a process that can be months and even years, depending on how profound these antibodies are, how many there are, how many different types there are, and it's different in every individual. So during that 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 bleed-in phase of the disease developing, you have partial pancreatic function. So they may have ups and downs of their sugars, and you just it can be hard to figure out what's going on. And that's the, quote, honeymoon phase, as I understand it. And there was always interesting uh, thoughts about, well, can we prevent or slow the progression towards frank type 1 diabetes, overt type 1 diabetes, by somehow tying up these antibodies or giving a drug to block these antibodies? And I think there's still research about that and looking at ways to do that. Of course, the more burgeoning research, as we talked about, is the stem cell transplants. But I don't know how you keep those antibodies from attacking the new stem cells unless they're they're changing the stem cells somehow. You know, I, I don't really understand all that. I'm not a molecular biologist, but these are obviously amazing people that are doing this kind of research. But that's basically what they're talking about. Right. So can we also just kind of recap the causes for type 1 diabetes? Yes, it's autoimmune. It's the antibodies attacking the the cells in the pancreas that make insulin. Explain autoimmune, if you don't mind. It's your body making antibodies against its own tissue, which is not how it's supposed to work. You're supposed to make antibodies to attack foreign proteins from invading microbes and and foreign proteins that you ingest that do harm to your body. Your body's supposed to tie up those proteins and kill those bacteria and viruses and things that harm our body. That's what your immune system is supposed to do. Well, sometimes it's a little haywire or there's some excessive, some extra genes that code for a antibody formation that attack normal tissue inside your body. So that's what autoimmunity is. Now, some there's the theory of the post-viral thing or the viral infection setting this off. Maybe the virus attacks the beta cells or maybe the immune response to the virus attacks the, the beta cells, what we call cross-reactive immunity. It's, it's kind of unknown, but they have identified the the genetic links, as we talked about earlier, and the risk factors we talked about, the family history, the genetics, the young age with with juvenile and type 1 diabetes or, or type 1 diabetes, same thing, um, and the geography. The farther you go away from the equator, the higher the incidence of type 1 diabetes. So it's not from drinking too many sodas. It's not from eating too much candy. It's just the way they're made, the conditions that they are under. Right. So also for anyone listening, if you have a child that is diagnosed with type 1 diabetes, is treatment up for discussion? No. Without treatment, it is inevitable death, okay? Even pre-insulin era, you know, which was most of human history until the last 102 years, they could recognize diabetes. They didn't have drugs to treat type 1 diabetes with. So what they would do is put these kids on starvation diets. They would just really low carbohydrate, low calorie. Sometimes the kids would actually die of calorie starvation. 
they would put them on 450, 500 calorie a day diets and just like zero carbs or near zero carbs. And that would prolong the disease somewhat. But without treatment, 50% of these kids are dead in two years and 90% are dead at five years. So no, treatment is, there's no discussing treatment. Treatment is just done. Repeat those statistics. Without treatment of type 1 diabetes, once it's diagnosed, 50% of people are dead at two years and 90% are dead at five years. Which is exactly why we're doing what we're doing today. Because if it goes unrecognized, yes, it will ultimately end in death. Many, many thanks to Banting and Best and their colleagues. They did a good job 100 years ago. That's right. And the point of today's episode is not to go extremely deep into proper diet, proper medication management, etc. But I would like to just talk just a little bit about the American Diabetes Association's website. If you are listening and you or your child has type 1 diabetes, that really is an excellent resource. And, you know, the headline on their website, you know, with the right tools and support, you can do anything. And that is absolutely accurate. And they help provide the tools and, and the support that's needed they actually, if again, I'll link their website, but they have some areas to help people with like any kind of mental health issues that they may be experiencing. They also have information to help you learn how to eat a proper diabetic diet. They also have information to help you learn how to manage your medication. And then they also have information on their website about the kids' camps. And they they put on these camps so that they can help kids connect with other children and mentors who are um, also diabetic patients and that not only does it help them learn that they're not alone and it gives them a community to belong to but they also do lots of education during that time frame so that's just an excellent resource and I do want to end on a message of hope I've known many many type 1 diabetics over the years business owners physicians professors very successful, very intelligent, very hardworking people that manage their disease. It's very important to be in touch with your doctors, your primary care doctors, your pediatricians, your endocrinologist, if you're an adult, your pediatric endocrinologist, if you're a parent taking care of a child, and work in conjunction with all these people to help you or your family member, whoever's suffering from type 1 diabetes, and realize that this is something that can be managed and treated and can actually just extend your life by decades, by many decades. So I, I do want people to know that there's ongoing research. If you're young, the future is much brighter now than it was even just 20 or 30 years ago for treatment. It can be managed. It can You can have a wonderful life, and there are just really amazing people out there trying to do even more amazing things for this disease than have been done in the past. So stick with it, you know, toe the line, do what your doctors say and, and get better. Right. And also just remain aware, learn the signs and symptoms and remain vigilant. Yes. And the organizations that are putting on the National Diabetes Awareness Month, thank you very much. This is so important for y'all to do. Thank you. Yes. And thank you all for listening. Again, you can find more about us at our website. That's markedmedicine.com. You can click on the Ask Dr. Mark tab where you can actually submit your questions. If you have any questions that you would like for Mark to answer in the future, or if you have a story to tell or a 
disease, for lack of better words, that you suffer from that you would like to raise awareness for? Because again, if you have information and you feel like you would like to share it, even if even if there's only one person helped, then you know that'll be one life saved potentially. So reach out to us. We'd love to hear from you. And thank you all so much for listening. We hope that you join us next week.